Welcome to this special season of Libya Matters, where we reflect on the death and life of Salwa Bugagis and what it tells us about Libya today. The state of human rights, the battle for the rule of law, and the resilience of civil society. In this episode, we take a deeper look at the right to freedom of expression and association. Ten years on from the protests that started the Libyan uprising, and in a year where elections are supposed to take place, where are we in protecting and promoting these rights? We will explore why freedom of expression and assembly are so important to accountability, peace and democracy, why it is important that these rights are available equally and what they mean for diversity and inclusion. We will look at why, despite the 2011 uprising starting on the streets, the Libyan authorities since then have done their best to silence dissenters and even attack protesters, and why authorities are even using Gaddafi-era laws to do this. In general, the freedom of expression laws in Libya were very poor, although from the face of it was there are lots of pretending that there is freedom of expression through certain kind of laws. In reality, because most of the media channels were controlled either by the regime itself or by conduits of the regime, like the, the revolutionary committees or other uh, aspects of the regime itself, it was very difficult for somebody as a journalist or as uh, even a writer to write outside of that sphere. I mean, before the dawn of the internet, especially in Libya, which came around the year 2000, uh, it was very difficult for, there was no other medium for expression except uh, the official mediums, uh, which is owned and run by the regime uh, totally. And even the people who tried to venture outside of the country to publish or to write, they did it under the risk of being uh, monitored and also under the risk of trying not to uh, to censor themselves. There is self-censorship was a major part of a uh, lot of uh, writing uh, in Libya during uh, the Gaddafi era, especially after the, during the 70s when there was a crackdown on freedom of expression and a lot of journalists and writers were imprisoned for decades, some of them 10 years, some of them more. Let us start with some nostalgia, shall we? Marwa, what is your earliest happy memory of the uprisings and seeing people expressing themselves for the first time? I would say the graffiti on the walls. For decades, Libyans had been denied the expression, art, creativity. Um, with the uprising, suddenly, the, the waves of people that took to the streets um, was like breaking this, these chains of silence and that creativity came flooding into the streets. And it was, it was beautiful. It was nice to see the streets covered in color and, um, and art. And I think that, you know, if you lived in Gaddafi, Gaddafi's era, Libya, it was bleak and gray. And so that pop of color, that art, that expression was really something that stood out. Because you, for me, that was the first signs of, of change. Mine is similar, actually. My most personal moment um, was around this Distori campaign that we did at LFJL, which ran in 2011. We had a few events to show people the tangible elements of, of the Constitution, right? So... Um, two events that I especially loved, and they still actually give me goosebumps when I think about them. One was actually on graffiti. So we had a, a Disturi graffiti competition, and we had a songwriting competition. And for both of them, the, they had to sort of, people had to produce pieces of art um, that focused on four of the key foundations of a constitution. So freedom, dignity, equality, and, and justice. For the graffiti one, we 
actually had people cover the walls of the Gaddafi barracks in Tripoli um, with those four symbols. And it was so powerful because, you know, the graffiti was filling all the streets, but we wanted to make sure we got away from the some of the aggressive graffiti as well that we were seeing and just focusing on four really, really positive themes and rights. Um, and so to see this like building that was effectively where people were tortured and where people were had all their rights removed um, and such a symbol of oppression, gray oppression, if I'm using the color kind of analogy you gave, covered in hope was just, I mean, like I'm literally rubbing my legs now because I've got so much, so many goosebumps. Um, but that was really powerful. And then the second one was the song competition where, again, we asked people to write songs around those four themes. Um, and the winning song, I know I'm getting so quite emotional about this, but the winning song just makes my heart flutter still when I hear it. Um, so for me, it was just showing people that, you know, when you write in a constitution, freedom of expression, it's not a random abstract thing. It's not a political thing. Expression isn't just, you know, going to the streets and protesting. It's actually painting, singing, and all these things. And so, yeah, it's it still gets me through dark moments now to think about those early, early days. That's beautiful. I think it's exactly what we are talking about here. The reason why these rights are so important is because it's not just for a particular group of people or its niche, but it really is kind of this idea of freedom to be yourself, who you are. Um... Yes, it is important for the political discourse, but I think that there's more to it than just that. It's important for people um, in and their own identity. It's to wear what they like on the street, to express who they are, to explore the arts. It allows us to uh, to celebrate the diversity in Libya and I particularly remember one of those wonderful wins in the early days when um, seeing the news read in Tamazigh. It's been so nice to remember those early days, but I worry that we're at risk of nostalgia a little bit here. Um, when was the turning point in your mind when speaking your mind in Libya became dangerous, actually, and in some instances a, a death sentence? I think, I mean, for Libya... 2014 is, is very significant, right? It, it, it really is our turning point um, for various reasons. And um, I would say for me personally, it was Salwa's assassination. Um, the, the excitement, the hope, everything um, that we had from 2011 came to a a halt in in 2014 with the assassination of Salwa Bugagis. It was so shocking, I think, um, that it, in, in in its brutality, um, as a woman, uh, as a woman who was equally 
invested in the ideas of freedoms, um, who was inspired by her um, her her voice, her bravery, her um, you know her leadership, and to see that so brutally um, brought to an end. And I think I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, Anham, but I think that. To a large extent in Libya, there was this maybe naive idea that women still had a, um, would not be subjected to this open brutality. When I was living there, you still had, you know, you have to be home before dark because of the uh, the armed groups. There was still that, um, obviously, that, that element of fear as a woman that you had to kind of navigate in a country um, that was in conflict. But there was kind of this uh, invisible line as a woman um, that you felt that won't be crossed, and that was broken. That was, I think that's what made it so significant for me that no no one is untouchable in in Libya today and anything is possible that is my turning point I totally agree with you that was a a very big point for me as well you know Selwa was an inspiration for so many of us women and inspiration always sounds like you're you're putting a lot of pressure on the person you know but I think for us it was you know seeing someone who was so clear and so articulate and so unquestionably kind of pushing for the same for the same messages and, and so loudly and um and you know we we come across her and during the studio and I remember when the news broke out of, of her assassination I mean it's some of the themes we touched on in the last episode right about this me- it was clear messaging to women that you're not safe either so I, I totally agree with with your point about this kind of false security we felt as women that the armed conflict was a purely male thing um, but actually, not only was it not anymore, like you say, but it was they would go to your home to do it was a real kind of line for, for, for I think a lot of well, I know for a lot of the women that um, were doing this kind of work. I remember that day clearly. And I remember actually a few weeks after that day, a list appeared on, on social media that had identified 20 women that were wanted for assassination. And she was on that list. But so was I. And I think for me, that was sort of really, really brought it home. Another day I remember was actually in September the same year, 2014. So yeah, you are right that 2014 was the, the turning point. And actually by that stage in September, I had relocated fully to the to London after, you know, the what happened in, with Selwa and the list and everything else. I just felt like I wasn't safe anymore. Um, but I remember that day where one of my colleagues, um, one of our junior staff members came in and she was absolutely devastated. And I hadn't seen the news, so I didn't know what was going on. But it turned out that two you know, y- very young, very prominent youth activists, um, Tawfiq bin Saud and Samuel Kwafi had been assassinated. And it really brought home that no one was immune. You know, uh, your gender didn't protect you, your youth didn't protect you, your morals didn't protect you, your purity didn't protect you. Um, and I think it was a, a sombering moment. And I remember that day in the office, we all just sat down, had a had a really open conversation about how we felt and then everyone was sent home to take take time off to reflect. And I think, you know, that was a really sobering moment for everyone who works in this and the really, really high price of, of expressing yourself and of exercising your freedom of sort of assembly and getting out there and protesting and saying what you think. 
um, yeah, that the honeymoon period for that was 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 over. So it was, like you say, a wake up call for for all of us. Tawfiq was dangerous for those who were against what he believed in, what he fought for, which was nothing but peaceful change, a space for him to participate peacefully, actively, democratically in the public life. He believed in coexistence. He was never against any political player and his assassination was nothing but a strong message of that. It's only for us. You can't participate. Your voice is not going to be heard. And if you try so hard for your voice, your peaceful voice, to, to reach out to the public, we're just going to shut you down. We're going to shoot you. A lot of what we've been talking about around 2014 really highlights the link between elections and free expression and the crackdown on free expression that comes with that sometimes. And I'm thinking ahead, you know, we're sitting here this summer of 2021, looking ahead to an election at the end of the year. Well, as we always like to say, Marwa, supposed election at the end of the year. Um, and thinking about how important it is for that to work, that there are, you know, the freedom of expression and related freedoms like assembly and association are guaranteed in the widest sense possible. Um, and this is, you know, just plainly so that people are able, you know, those who are running for office are able to discuss what they care about. And more importantly, the public is able to question them on what they are talking about, right? It's, it's a fundamental part to be able to question your candidate so you can decide. And, you know, for our loyal followers, they'll remember back in episode four, we spoke to Carla Firstman about this concept of what accountability means in the widest sense. And she talked about, which I always think is one of the most powerful themes that's come out, is this idea that it's about building trust between citizens and representatives. And so at its most crucial, being able to call out politicians about claims they made and promises they made uh, during an election process later on to hold them accountable is key. To be able to do that without fear and without repercussion is like a crucial, crucial part of a democracy and especially a new one like ours, right? Exactly. And under the roadmap set out by the LPDF, the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum, which you're familiar with in HAM, it specifically requires that the new executive authority provide the needed resources, uh, re rehabilitate and regulate the media sector. In that light, it's important that the Libyan authorities repealed all the laws, regulating uh, regulations and decrees that provide disproportionate and illegitimate restrictions on the freedom of expression and press. To help enshrine accountability, we would want to see the state act by ensuring that attacks and threats against those who speak out publicly are immediately investigated. And when I say investigation, I mean a real independent investigation that aims to hold those responsible to account. I think another element worth emphasizing here is that these protections we've been talking about and the sense of safety or protection that account, genuine accountability gives are crucial for those who are in the professional sector freedom of expression. So here I'm thinking of journalists and, and the wider media, but also for civil society actors and the wider public too. 
And of course, there's always a gendered element to this. And we've talked about this theme throughout the season, and it will become clearer every time we speak. But, you know, the data we've seen and some of the research we've seen shows a disproportionate number of women leaving the profession due to smear campaigns and the online violence they face. Throughout this series, we talk to journalists and media people who experience attacks firsthand and witness key challenges to women then and now. The Transitional Council was located during the, um, the seven months or eight months of the revolution, was located in Benghazi. And then when the Transitional Council moved to, after the liberation of Tripoli, they moved to Tripoli and there was this beautiful celebration of them. The ceremony was for the transfer of power from the National Transitional Council to the General National Congress. And Sarah was a young, beautiful young lady who was chosen to lead that um, celebration and be the spokesperson that night. So all of that is happening and we're very excited. I was, I still remember it. I was in Egypt at that time. I was in Cairo. All excited and we're all waiting for that moment where Mustafa Abjilin will be uh, speaking and during this uh, celebration. And here comes Sarah, a beautiful young lady who is very articulate, who is very passionate about being first time to be the, um, the MC for the uh, event. And few, uh, the male uh, who were present at that time, decided that she was not dressed appropriately. And they refused um, to, they created a, a big scene Sarah was removed because she did not have a scarf on. Her hair was showing. Um, she was dressed very modestly. That was a major, major setback. I'm hearing people, okay, so-and-so wanted to Sarah to be removed. Sarah's not wearing a scarf and they want to bring her a scarf and they told her no. And it was just chaotic. And I'm thinking, how come we are looking at a young girl having a scarf or not having a scarf instead of focusing on the huge success and the celebration of overthrowing a 42-year-old <laughs> uh, dictatorship. Even if you're, you're not covering news and you're at the same distance from all different political and armed parties, it is still as challenging to, to work in media, period. I personally have experienced very recently huge attacks for one post about TV drama that were posted on a platform that belongs to the same institution that I work for. But just because someone doesn't like me or doesn't like my family, it was the perfect uh, timing for them to to attack me with uh, with that post, and uh, it wasn't just me. My my mother's name was dragged, and for for literally nothing. For uh, editorially, there was nothing wrong uh, uh, with that with that post. That was the trigger. So again, it is always very challenging to work in media. If 
you're listening to this episode and wondering how you can support human rights defenders and those seeking to exercise their freedom of expression, assembly and association peacefully, then you can do that by supporting the Ali Nuh Fund. This is a fund created by LFJL to provide emergency assistance to human rights defenders who are at risk due to their work. Every penny you donate will go to them. We believe that one of the best ways to secure Libya's future is by protecting its human rights defenders. Join us in doing so by giving what you can to the Ali Nuh Fund. To find out more, click on the link in the episode description or visit alinouhfund.ly. That is A-L-I-N-O-U-H fund.ly. Thank you. And now back to the episode. So far in this episode, we've been discussing the human impact of all of this, which is obviously what this is all about and, and what we care about. But there are legal aspects where there are legal elements that allow this to happen, right? That allow the authorities to do this. For sure, Libya's legal framework on freedom of expression is inconsistent and contradictory and lacks adequate protection that could guarantee this fundamental right. In fact, it breaches international and regional human rights treaties to which Libya is party to, including the International Covenant on uh, Civil and Political Rights, or ICCPR, and the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. So bear with us, this is going to be heavy, but it's important. The right to freedom of expression is also enshrined at the domestic level in Libya by the Constitutional Declaration of August 3rd, 2011. In the Constitutional Declaration, Article 14 states that the state shall guarantee freedom of opinion individual and collective expression, research, communication, press, media, printing, and editing, movement, assembly, demonstration, and peaceful sit-in in accordance with the statute. That sounds amazing. It does, right? But the declaration does not grant the rights in question to all persons, regardless of status, age, or nationality. And it does not explicitly prohibit censorship and does not include the rights to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas as required by the ICCPR. And looking further at other domestic laws, the penal code also contains some really bad provisions that do not adhere to international standards outlined in the ICCPR and so place illegitimate limitations on freedom of expression. And yet interim governments have failed to repeal or amend any of these provisions. But in fact, they've passed even further restrictive and obstructive laws. I'll give an example here. Law 5 of 2014 criminalizes, and I quote, any action which may harm or prejudice the February 17 revolution, as well as insulting remarks publicly directed at the executive, judiciary, or the legislature, or any of their members, or insulting the nation's flag. The use of the phrasing any action which may harm or prejudice could be so widely interpreted, making the law susceptible to abuse by state authorities who may wish to apply this in any situations which are not in pursuit of a legitimate aim or necessary to protect such legitimate aims. Add to that, individuals or objects, regardless of their high standing in society, do not have a blanket right to be free from insulting remarks. This would inhibit the media's ability to criticize authorities for suspected misuse of public power. In addition, the Penal Code, through its criminalization of various acts of expression, often provides severe sanctions or punishments, which are so disproportionate. Prison sentences are provided for insulting public officials, the Libyan nation or the Libyan flag, 
a minimum term of six months is prescribed for attacks against anyone's reputation or defamation. But while there are justifiable limits to the right of expressing one's opinion, defamation should not be considered a criminal offence and instead be considered as a civil law issue. Article 207 imposes the death penalty for promoting theories or principles that aim to overthrow the political, social or economic system. You come out and you discuss what the situation is on the ground, let's say the fact that there is no rule of law. And you suggest that a better way to do that would be to change the system we have to one that enshrines the rule of law, where it's more democratic. And you talk about, a, you know, a system of electing that is different to what we have today. You know, Marwa, the kind of stuff we do. According to this, that's a death sentence. This is a book called Shams um, al-Anawafid Mughlaqa, Sun That is Shining Behind Closed Windows, if you can say. And this is an initiative, it was an anthology that was started through RET uh, Foundation, which is run by Khaled Mutawa, the Libyan-American poet, uh, who started this project, the uh, REIT Foundation, as a way of cultivating talent and a way of producing uh, and, and, and supporting uh, cultural projects in Libya, everywhere. This is, was an initiative to start to get new talent writing in one book for the future, for, for these writers to find a voice and then as a launching platform for, the, for themselves and for people to read them. Uh, a lot of them were under the age of 30, uh, some of them were published before, some of them weren't published before. Collection, the anthology was contained, chapters of novels or short stories. And as a publisher, Darf Publishers, which is connected to Dar al-Firjani in Libya, uh, Darf Publishers, it's based in London and in Cairo, we were chosen to, to publish it, to, to print it and publish and distribute it through our channels. That was what happened. We printed the book in Cairo and then we decided to distribute it in Libya because that's where the market is, because these are Libyan talents and it has to be launched there. And Khaled Mtawa and uh, Leila Mughrabi, who are the both editors of the, of the collection, went to Libya and had the launch there with 24 writers. They did the launch in Benghazi and then the launch in Tripoli. And then there were some other events in Zawiya, in the south, in Sabha and other places, because it collected a lot of the Libyan talent that were writers that collected this, were collected in the anthology were from all over the country, which is, I would say, one of the unique things that happened. And we had actually a very, very a good couple of months where the book was selling very well. Uh, people were getting good reviews. People were happy. Suddenly, we started to get uh, people on Facebook mainly. I think they picked up, somebody who picked it up on Facebook started putting pages, uh, pictures of pages of the book, especially the first few pages of, uh, there was a, a chapter of a, of a novel by one of the writers and highlighting that uh, these offensive, you know, <laughs> sentences of what is mentioned in this this fictional writing, saying the usual. I mean, we were, it's, it's not un, unfamiliar, this kind of attacks about writing in general. People who are not familiar with reading such, you know, fictional matters, sometimes you get offended. I wouldn't say this is exclusive to Libya, but it uh, can, can happen anywhere in the world. The consequence can be exclusive to Libya. It really started a big storm on Facebook and social media and people started to attack it, attack the people who are behind it. And then suddenly uh, you get uh, cultural uh, or governmental entities in Tripoli and Benghazi 
uh, fighting each other against it. So it was a very weird moment when the third country was divided into more or less two, two, two or three <laughs> governments, where the people in Tripoli were saying, "We gotta. This is despicable. Who distributed this book? You didn't have any any authority to distribute this book. How this book uh, infiltrated the country?" And they uh, decided to confiscate it. They said uh, any any copies has been confiscated. Although they don't have the authority to do that, even by law there is no authority for them to do so. During that time, one of the bookshops, Virginia bookshops in, in Tripoli, had to be closed for for nearly two weeks because people were coming. And I remember they would try even to break in. I don't know what was the intention. Probably vandalizing the bookshop where the book was being sold. The staff had to go into hiding because they didn't know what exactly was going to happen. And people were really uh, afraid for their lives. One of the writers had been uh, kidnapped in Tripoli, was taken to somewhere, then uh, was uh, tortured and then was uh, released. He didn't even know who are these people, who are, who are these militia people or whatever. And then uh, some of the one of the editors had to, to flee the country, and another writers also had to, to leave the country. Actually, some of the writers who are now in exile, they probably can't go back to Libya because of the situation that the book caused. The sad thing, of course, the other part is that the book has been stopped from being shared or read in Libya, and it can be still distributed and bought outside of it. But in Libya, is nearly more or less uh, censored because of that. I think if somebody picked up uh, a good lawyer or through through legal matters, they would have easily knocked uh, all the uh, knocked it down. You know, there was there was a, like a decree of confiscating the book and uh, and preventing it, um, uh, banning it from being distributed in the country. My knowledge about these laws is that they are very flimsy and can be easily challenged in the court of law. As a publisher, we didn't pursue that uh, avenue uh, and the editor editors didn't do so. Uh, the writers, of course, who are the main party that uh, were uh, hurt out of this, didn't do so because they were protecting themselves. And, and a lot of the time, I think, journalists and writers, because of their lack of knowledge of uh, of, of the laws and their sometimes inability to act uh, collectively, that makes them a prey to, to abuse. Before uh, 2011, there was the, uh, the League of, or the Union of, uh, of Writers, uh, which is a foundation, uh, an association of writers in Libya that was very, very active. And, and the Gaddafi regime was actually used to uh, put a lot of pressure on it because it was collection of writers all over Libya that were used to really protect for themselves because they had many writers or lawyers or uh, who knew exactly understood the law. Uh, but nowadays, even after 2011, the problem is that there is this, the same entity still exists that is so weak and fragmented and uh, very hard to work uh, to protect uh, freedoms of expression and also the rights of writers. But I think the point here is that the media have access to the politicians as citizens and members of civil society. And the same is, goes for when talking about the legislative guarantees, right? A framework that allows media freedom and a diverse and plural media environment is just as important as protecting the rights um, of private individuals. 
So after the 2011 uprising, the establishment of media outlets had increased rapidly. We saw over 50 TV channels at some point in comparison to what a handful of government-led TV channels in the Gaddafi era. And it wasn't just TV, right? There was also a rapid increase in the number of radio stations and newspapers as well. This progress has also come with many channels using hate speech and have, at times, incited violence. This has seen a public demand to address this. And as a result, it's prompted a increasingly repressive legal framework, which has been done without sufficient legal authority to do so. I want to make a point in more detail here. There is this danger that we saw in in those words that we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the roadmap, right? About rehabilitate and regulate the media, uh, which ended up being used in the roadmap and will end up or could end up being used to censor the media. At the time of looking at this in the roadmap, and in fact, whenever we discuss media in Libya, there is this conflation between media and hate speech, and then the latter being used to curtail the media and freedom of expression like widely. Regulating the media has become this really, really hot topic, because on the one hand, lots of people are calling for media regulation, like you say, uh, to combat the form of hate speech that led to the death of Salwa and others. But actually, even the smallest amount of regulation could be used to quell civil society, questioning state action. And I just think it's always really worth to take a step back and think about that balance of when are you limiting hate speech and controlling that versus limiting freedom of expression. And there's a there's a tender balance that needs to be struck and every country does it differently. But whenever I think about this question and when it comes in debates like this, the minute I, I see the word rehabilitate or regulate, I, I panic a little bit. And in the context of what we're talking about here, I wonder whether using Selwa's story, which is used often to say she she would still be be with us if there wasn't the hate speech against her, to then curtail all of freedom of expression, which she fought so much for, is the best way to uphold her legacy. It really is about finding the best balance and perhaps finding more inventive and creative ways to counter hate speech. There definitely needs to be a balance and the reality of what's happening today is that is that you have all these regulations um, uh, against the media, but it's not stopping the hate speech either. None the wiser today with any of this, and not and not any better off either. The responsibility is on Libya's authorities to work to end hate speech and the media polarization by, for example, investing in education and creating a climate of empowerment so that the media can fulfill its role in ensuring accountability. It's a long game, but eventually the public changes what they expect from the media. And it becomes something that is self-regulating in terms of what gets published or reported and what doesn't. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying this special season of Libya Matters and are inspired by Libya's resilient civil society, as we are, then please support the Ali Noh Fund, an emergency assistance fund set up by LFJL to support human rights defenders under attack for their work. To find out more, click on the link in the episode description. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. 
This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future seasons, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is hosted by Ilham Saudi and me, Marwa Mohammed. It is produced by Tariq Nmiri. The people who put the season of Libya Matters together are Elham Saudi, Tim Molyneux, May Thompson, and me, Marwa Mohammed. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with International Media Support, IMS, with additional support from Dignity, the Danish Institute Against Torture. Hi, I'm May Thompson, and I work on documenting human rights violations in Libya. All of us at LFJL are sincerely grateful to Salwa's family and friends and all of our friends and partners in Libyan civil society for giving us their time and their trust to tell this story. This series is only possible because of you and is a tribute to you. On behalf of the whole team, thank you.